And now, with Sound Investing, here's Paul Merriman. Hi, I'm Paul Merriman, and I want to help you be financially fit. In this segment, I'll discuss how investing really works. Now, I think most people believe they know how investing works, or at the other end of the spectrum, they'll say it's nothing but a big gamble. But if you understand the real workings of investing and the probabilities that go along with it, I think it makes you a much stronger investor. Some of the things I'm going to share with you will have read about in Financial Fitness Forever, or you will have heard bits and pieces on the DVDs and in the workbook. But I want to make sure that I give this to you in a format that you will be thinking about how important each one of these concepts are to you really understanding philosophically and statistically and to be able to put good investing into perspective. Number one, there is no risk in the past. This is one of the most important pieces of information to understand investing and how it really works. Because people completely underestimate the importance that we know exactly what we should have done. A salesperson knows exactly what to sell because they know exactly what worked and if it didn't work we don't sell it. We, we know what we should have done. We should have put all of our money in Microsoft in 1986 when it came to the public. That's easy. People will say, we're number one. We have the best track record in the industry. You'll see advertisements, number one. No, no, no. It's not we are number one. It's we were number one. You have no idea what you're going to be. This is one of the reasons why it's so important to be diversified. Because if all we have to do is to invest in those things that made the most money in the past, then we'd end up in individual stocks. You would have invested in Microsoft in 2000 at 60. It had already made thousands of people multimillionaires. Get on board. Come on. And you know the end result because we know now it was not a smart thing to do. How do we know it wasn't smart? Because it didn't go up. So never forget when you're being sold a financial product. There is no risk in the past. All the risk is in the future and is unknown and that's why diversification is so important. Number two, from everything we know from all of the studies, low expenses lead to higher returns. High probability. That's all we can talk about. Probabilities. Number three, any compensation to a broker or advisor 
will color their recommendations. You can never completely eliminate all conflicts of interest. Your job is to make sure you minimize all potential conflicts of interest. One step, of course, is to work exclusively with fee-only advisors. You see, fee-only advisors can choose from all mutual funds as compared to commission-based advisors who work from a much smaller group of load funds. And in some cases, it's even worse. Some advisors are captive to one family of funds. Do you think that helps them find the very best for their clients? Of course not. And almost as bad is a situation where the investors are only offered insurance-based products because the salespeople are not licensed to offer a wider range of mutual funds. In some cases, the salespeople are trying to sell enough of a particular product to win a free trip to a, a warm spot in the winter. Is that a conflict you would like to know about? Of course. Investing works best for you when you eliminate conflicts of interest. Literally billions of dollars are lost each year because others put their needs in front of their clients. To the salesperson, it's a quick fix. For the investor, it's a loss of asset that will never work for them again. Number four, all asset classes will underperform for long periods of time. Just as people would have laughed at me in 2000 when Microsoft was over 60, if I told them that for the next 12 years, the stock would fall by over 50%, and that you would not have made a penny, you would have lost half of your money. They would have laughed at me. But they could have also laughed at me if I had if I had suggested that for the next decade the S&P 500 won't make a penny on an inflation-adjusted basis. Not a penny. Would have, been, would have been laughed at. But this is normal. That's the way investing really works. If you look at small cap, yes, it does beat large cap over the last 83 years. But we went through a 30-year period where it didn't. It underperformed large-cap blend at about twice the risk of large-cap blend. Still made a fine return, by the way. I'm not saying it didn't make money. I'm saying that you didn't get the small-cap premium for 30 years. And then you did, big time. Number five, the returns in a diversified portfolio are driven in large, very large part by the asset classes in that portfolio. Now you can debate 
whether it's 90% of the return or, as some people say, 99% of the return will be simply the asset class you pick. It's not about picking good stocks or being a market timer. It turns out, for example, that over the last 10 years, if you put your money in the S&P 500, any S&P 500 fund, you did poorly compared to people who were in emerging markets, any emerging market fund. I don't know of one emerging market fund that did as poorly as the S&P 500. That is going to define your financial future, your returns. That is why, and this is the beauty of simple investing the way that I'm trying to get you to do it. You don't have to know anything about 100,000 or 10,000 or uh, uh, different investments. You just have to understand a handful of asset classes. You can understand them. They're not hard to understand. All small companies, that's not hard to understand. But try to understand one of those small companies. And that's a lot of work. Number six, oh, I love the response I get to this one at a workshop because always a handful of people are playing the market, buying, selling, or just buying stocks. Even if they're just buying and holding them, they believe that they're going to get a better return by picking individual stocks. But the fact is, and we don't know the fact of what return that you will get. But let me say the belief is in the academic community, and this is, a, this is a big, big lesson, that the expected rate of return of any one large cap growth stock is the average of all large cap growth stocks. The expected return of one is the same of a thousand. And this is a huge piece of information. Now, again, it's hard to believe because I've asked, I've asked for years, how many of you who buy stocks ever bought a stock with the idea that it wouldn't do better than the market? I never got a hand. They always believe they're going to do better than the asset class they're in. That's the nature of investors. They're optimistic. They're overconfident. But if you believe that the return of a thousand is going to be the same as one, now we all know, by the way, intellectually, that it's not going to be exactly the same. Not many. Because if the average of all is 10, well, yeah, there'll be some at one, there'll be some at 20. That will happen. But you have no idea whatsoever of what is, in fact, going to drive the 1 to 20 or the one other one down to 1. There's no way to know that. There's no evidence that anybody can know that. If there, was, if there was any kind of evidence, there would be people who would be super rich because it would be easy to be super rich if you could figure out how to make 20%. I mean, that's only double the index. Come on. That's not that big a deal. But it is. It just seems like it shouldn't be. And if, in fact, 
the expectation for one stock's return is the same as a thousand, who would ever decide to put their money in one stock? Because that stock could be Enron. It could be Eastern Airlines. It could be Washington Mutual. It could be a number of what at one point had been fine companies that aren't. It's a very important lesson about how investing really works and what you believe. Number seven, those thousand companies that equal the one company. The problem is when you have a thousand companies, it does not protect you against market risk. This is how investing works. When we have a bear market in that asset class that holds those thousand stocks, I don't care what the asset class is, but when those thousand stocks hit a bear market, the market is going to take the whole group down. I don't mean that there won't be a few, but the majority, probably at least based on history, 85% of the stocks will go down. You do not protect yourself against market risk by having a thousand stocks. You protect yourself against stock risk. So you have to figure out a way, either with fixed income or market timing. I'll talk about that on another segment. Number eight, no risk investments are likely after inflation and after taxes. The riskiest of all. Low risk investments may be the safest in terms of capital preservation on a short-term basis. But if you look even at the last decade through 2010, the T-bills, not counting taxes, made 0.1% a year. CDs made 0.3. That was after inflation, by the way, but not counting taxes. So what we know is, is that we may like the idea of safety and not losing money. But in the long run, inflation by far is the biggest bear market we face. Can't guarantee you'll have inflation. But from everything I know about the past, the likelihood is very high that you will have inflation in your life. And that will eat up more of your money than any bear market I've ever seen. Number nine, however you have invested your money, you have made a huge mistake. And the reason I know that is because if you take your portfolio from any brokerage house or any investment advisor and take it to another brokerage house, or investment advisor, they're going to say, you know something, you could really be doing a lot better. Let me show you how we think you should do it. There is nothing evil about their attempt to lure you to their management. You see, that's the goal of every mutual fund family and every brokerage house and every bank. Fidelity wants Vanguard's clients and Vanguard is after Fidelity's. And the major brokerage firms think you would do much better in load funds than 
no-load funds, it's capitalism hard at work. The problem is when you find a perfectly fine strategy and the competition's job is to somehow make you feel either greedy enough or afraid enough to make the change. They only win if they can get you to change. And there is normally some cost every time you make a change. They certainly pushed the greed button to get investors into high tech in the late 90s. And the fear button that scared investors into annuities over the last couple of years. My hope for you is you'll find a lifetime strategy that not only works, but gives you the confidence to stay the course when others are knocking at your door. Number 10. Just because everyone believes a certain investment strategy works doesn't make it so. Here's one of those common beliefs. Dollar cost averaging is a smart way to invest your money in the stock market. Unfortunately, this simple and normally successful investing strategy can end in a disaster. See, dollar cost averaging dictates you invest the same amount on a regular basis. Does that sound a little like a 401k? Of course. When the value of a security is down, dollar cost averaging forces an investor to buy more shares. And when it's up, the same dollar amount will buy fewer shares. Eventually, when the security rises, the investor reaps a big reward. You see, that's the good news about dollar cost averaging. But the bad news? If the security does not eventually go up, or if after many years of going up, eventually collapses, all the dollar cost averaging was for naught. Does that sound a little bit like Washington Mutual or Bear Stearns, Enron. Dollar cost averaging works well with broad market averages, but even they can fail. And they can fail right before you reach retirement. Certainly, the S&P 500 failed investors over the last 12 years because people who retired 12 years ago and had all their equity money in the S&P 500 have been taking money out of their portfolio at the same time as the fund has done nothing. Dollar cost averaging is great during the accumulation stage, but relatively meaningless during the distribution stage of investing. And that that might be the best during the accumulation stage could turn out to be the worst during the distribution stage. Number 11. Dalbar and Morningstar studies indicate that the biggest hurdle you face 
is the psychological hurdle, that, that face in the mirror when you get up each morning. And there are enough studies, and I have anecdotal evidence certainly from my work over 40 years in this industry, that it is not knowing how to invest that is the problem. It's maintaining the discipline to invest. The textbooks are full of strategies that work for the long term. Even the work that brokers do will lead to at least some moderate success. But it is the psychological hurdle that you need to get over. Of course, this is the reason I've advocated for mechanical, automated kinds of investment strategies. It is also the reason that I have advocated for many people to get professional help. Number 12, the longer the performance, the more statistically relevant that is when it pertains to asset class returns and risk. The longer. So sometimes we will show the track record uh, and this was prior to 2000, of the S&P 500. And what we were showing was a track record from 1926 to 1999 that had about a 10% compound rate of return. But for the previous five years, it had compounded at about 28.5%. And people would say to me, Paul, you, I'm sorry, you don't understand. It's a new era. It's not the same. Things have changed. Returns will be greater in the future. And a lot of people were putting all of their money into the S&P 500 because it was so obvious that this was not a 10% a year investment. This was a 20% a year investment. And in 1999, early 2000, when people were surveyed, the average expected returns ranged from about 20% a year up to 30 but we had the statistics that went back to 1926. They told us about 1929 through 32. They told us about 69 through 74. They told us about lots of bad periods that go along to get that 10%. So we stuck to our guns. There's nothing to make us believe that there's anything more than 10% approximately in the S&P 500. And if you think you've seen some good stuff on the upside, you know what you're likely to see on the downside. Because from time to time, the market goes down and loses half your money. That's the past. That's why we want to go back as far as we can. And people would say, well, that, the, that stuff doesn't matter that happened back in 1930 and 1940, etc. These are just markets driven by human emotion. And human emotion appears not to have changed. That, I don't believe. There's no evidence that, that, that it is, in fact, changed. So I do think that you need to get as long a term in terms of both returns and risk, as, as long a period as you can. But here's the problem. When you're looking at the returns of an active manager, 
that history doesn't mean anything. This is the part that is kind of a stumbling block for people. Because the very thing I would be able to say about an index, I could not say about an active manager. Because they can do anything they want. So what do I know what they're going to want to do next? And you're going to say, well, they're going to want to do something smart. Well, yeah, every manager wants to do something smart. Number 13. In investing, more risk should lead to more return. More risk, more return. Now, with speculating, more risk tends to lead to less return. And I'm talking about over a 10-year period. There, there is really no evidence that if you speculate, if you're trying to make the big home run, the big hit, the point at which you tend to speculate, and probably the reason this doesn't work out for most people, is after the easy money has been made. And, uh, and, and once the easy money has been made, getting an unusually high return is just not in the cards because the lower the risk as something develops and becomes real. See, when something's not real, then people love to speculate on the possibilities of the future. This certainly happened with internet companies. And it'll happen again. So, with investing, you should expect that premium. But with speculation, there is no evidence that that's the case. Number 14, more stocks are actually better with risky asset classes. In other words, the, the more kind of illiquid the asset class is, the more stocks you want. The S&P 500, very, very, very liquid. You can trade billions of dollars of, of the S&P 500 through derivatives or other ways and have relatively little impact on the price. You try to do that with a small company and you got a problem. That small company could go from 30 down to 20 or 15 in one day if you tried to liquidate too many at one time. So when you are in more speculative or more illiquid asset classes, more risky, you want to be in funds that have more stocks. For example, the International Small Cap Fund that we use for our clients, 4,609 companies at the end of 2010. Simply trying to get this, the small cap premium internationally. If you looked at the average mutual fund at Morningstar, 364. You want as many as you can get. Number 15. Strategies that use active trading tend to make less for investors. That is especially true in illiquid markets because the costs and the spreads that are paid to buy and sell, the difference between the bid and ask, that's called a spread, those are very high. And strategies that, according to the, to the academic studies, where people trade a lot, that's why men make less than women, 
because men, the hunters, they trade more. And uh, now maybe they're just picking the wrong companies. But the studies show uh, that, uh, that women make about 2% more a year uh, than men at the same risk level because they don't see themselves as being savvy uh, traders. Number 16, don't you ever pay a fee unless there's evidence there's a premium for paying that fee, that expense. That's why I don't want you to buy a load fund. Because I don't think there is a premium for paying that load. I don't want you to be in mutual funds that have a lot of turnover. There is no evidence that you're going to make higher returns because of the high turnover. In fact, the high turnover will also lead to paying more taxes. Now, it's an interesting decision that you have to make now when you have to decide whether or not you're going to hire an advisor. Is an advisor worth the money? Now, I'll be talking in another uh, segment about how to select an advisor. But if you can't get this done on your own, there is definitely a premium. But you want to make doggone sure that whoever you're paying as your advisor is investing in a way that, in fact, is going to, is going to create the premiums that you're not getting because you don't want to do it. Number 17, a great hedge does not equal a great investment. A hedge is normally built to protect against inflation. And so gold, for example, has been a hedge against inflation. So have bonds. In fact, the return over 50 years on gold has been virtually the same as uh, corporate bonds, uh, with a lot less risk for corporate bonds. Uh, and T-bills aren't that far behind. Uh, or short-term bonds. And, uh, and those have, in fact, been decent hedges against inflation over the long run. But that doesn't make it a great investment. Gold has made about half uh, of what a, a portfolio of, uh, of diversified equities have made. Now, by the way, to make half, you don't have to, if gold makes a 7% return for 50% over 50 years, you don't have to double it to 14 to make a lot more than gold. Because once you get into compounding, remember that when you're making 7% a year, you're going to double your money in about 10 years. If you make 10% a year, you're going to double your money in about 7 years. So you don't have to actually double the return to make more than twice the return. But a great hedge just to maintain the value, the buying power of that money does not equal what a great investment would make. Number 18, and I know you've heard a lot of this from me, but there's this huge benefit to combining asset classes that don't go up and down together. It's huge. And it's huge because it allows you to put together asset classes that are a little riskier and yet not because they don't go up and down together. By putting them together, it turns out that you end up 
having a level of risk that's virtually the same as the less risky asset class, but gives you access to much higher returns. Number 19, investors are more likely to succeed if their investment is within their risk tolerance. I've told the story many times about CGM focus. This was true with Fidelity Magellan, by the way, even when Peter Lynch was managing. CGM Focus has an eight, a, a 10 year record that they make 18% and the investors lost 17. A year? A year? We're talking. Peter Lynch once said that 48% of the people who fired him took their marbles and went home from Fidelity Magellan, left with a loss. The best manager in the industry, according to the track record, 48% of the people he worked for fired him and went home a loser. Number 20, every investment has a guaranteed loss built in. A guaranteed loss built in at some point. Now it's obvious with T-bills and CDs, the loss is there in, in, in big time, it's inflation. And we'll take almost all of your earnings after inflation. But when we start talking about the stock market, every investment I've ever seen has some sort of a loss built in. I don't mean that you'll lose forever. Obviously, people who have invested in the stock market uh, in something like the S&P 500 for 30 years, they've made good money. But along the way, there were devastating periods. And every investor should know the guaranteed loss that's built in and make sure they've identified those things that are going to create that loss and do all you can to manage it. Number 21, when we make decisions, investment decisions, without all the facts, there is a high probability it is going to be largely driven by emotions and it will end badly. That's why investing in individual companies so often is a bad idea. Because every company's got a reason to buy. Now some are easier to buy because the story is so sexy and exciting and whoa, we could make a ton of money. In other cases the story is the stock is so beat down it's unbelievable. People are giving it away. But the minute that the decision becomes that easy, it's emotional and leads to bad decisions. Number 22, low taxes, more tax efficient investing will likely lead to higher returns. John Bogle says taxes will cost people about 1% a year. And you can get around that. You can invest in a tax efficient way that will eliminate that 1% a year. Number 23, the highest probability of success for most investors will come with the help of a professional. But here's the rub, and here's the reason it doesn't work often. You must know the difference between a professional salesperson and a professional advisor. There is a, a huge difference 
and I will address that in a later segment. Number 24, high returns are compensation for taking risk. If an investment is comfortable, it's unlikely to pay a high return. The highest returns tend to come after a market has been decimated. In fact, if you bought small cap value funds every year after the S&P 500 has lost money the previous year, you'd have a phenomenal return. At least looking backwards, it could be one of the great market timing systems. All you do is wait for the S&P 500 to lose money put it in bonds, and then when the S&P has a loss, you put it back into value. In fact, you should probably do it value U.S., value international, small value, large value. But at that moment, it's not going to be comfortable. It is comfortable to invest for most people when the market's high. But the money is made when the market's out of favor, and it's climbing that famous wall of worry. Uh, number 25, the longer you invest or hold a position in a stock, the higher the probability of loss. Most people believe that if you hold something for a very long period of time, that the probability of success goes up substantially. Actually, the longer you hold an individual stock, the greater the probability of loss, not gain. If you invest in a good company today, the odds of that company failing in the next year is very, very low. On the other hand, if you assume you hold the company for 50 years, the probabilities of a major problem becomes very likely. When I look back at a list of the very exciting public companies in the 60s, many of those companies are not even in business anymore. It's one of the reasons I am much more comfortable owning stocks through an index than trying to guess which individual companies will do well. As a group, they've done remarkably well. But as individual companies, it's not so rosy. Number 26. A small amount of equity can make a huge difference. A huge difference in your retirement. And uh, this is really, I think, one of the most important things that investors need to know, conservative investors in particular, and that is that if you can just get a small a bit of additional risk from adding a small amount of equity to your fixed income portfolio, it can be an absolute life changer. And let's assume that you retired in 1970 and you conservatively put all of your money in fixed income. Using a fixed income strategy that we advise people who use fixed income in the portfolio, they would have gotten over that 41-year period ending 2010, 
a 6.8% compound rate of return. And the industry oftentimes recommends you take out 4% and adjust for inflation, and that's a very safe thing to do. And in fact, doing that, you would have run out of money with that strategy in 1997. But if you added 10% equity, 10%, you would have added 7 tenths of 1% to the return. Just a little bit of equity. The risk parameters are virtually the same. Statistically, it's almost, it's almost no difference. Just 10%. The money lasts through 2002. And if you go to 20% in equities, the money lasts all the way through the end of 2010, and you leave about a third of the money you started with to your heirs. But if you had the risk tolerance to have 30% of your money in equities, no more, no more than that, you would have had a 9.6% compound rate of return, and this includes fees, and you would be left with about four times what you started with. So one of, I think, the important lessons you need to learn about investing and how it really works this is not about going jumping in the stock market with all your money. It's having some, even if it's only 10%. The rewards from everything we know about the past can be huge, either in what you have in your life or what you leave to others. Number 27. It's the unknown not the known information that will make your investment go up or down in the future. This is a difficult aspect of investing for a lot of people who think it's their personal analysis that will make the company go up in the future. The academics believe that the price of the stock today within a, a reasonable range reflects all of the known information. So the people who spout off about what a stock will be worth in the future, they are just blowing smoke. They can't know the unknown. Now we are on number 28. Less volatility leads to better rates of return for most investors. And the reason this is important is because what we're looking for in research is to find out what works for people. How does it really work? In the real world, how does it work? And it appears the evidence points to that those people who have a balanced portfolio tend not to panic. If they've got half of their money in bonds and the market goes down and they've got enough, then they don't panic. And those people who are anywhere from about 40% equity to 60% equity are likely to stay the course. And the only way you get the reward with any of these strategies, any strategy, is if you stay the course for a long period of time because we never know what's going to happen tomorrow. Number 29, 
a combination of bonds and equities has historically achieved a similar rate of return, a close rate of return to an all-equity portfolio. Many studies show that a 60-40 strategy will pick up about 90% or as low as 80% of the market. But if the market produces a 10% compound rate of return and you get 8 with a 60-40 at 40% less risk, I suspect that particularly those near or in retirement would be more than happy to have 80%. And in fact, what we saw in a study that we took back to 1927 is that a 60-40 stocks and bonds portfolio had a return that was virtually the same as the S&P 500, but the 60% equity was split between large and small and value and growth, not just the S&P 500. And it never had a 10-year period that it lost money. Number 30. People lie. This is something important to understand about how investing really works. People just lie. And one of the reasons I think you getting a good education, I would like to think that what I offer is a great education. Just give me it. Let's just call it good. If you get a good education, you'll be able to spot the lies. But people in any industry, in any part of life, they lie. I read a lot about lying over the years, and according to one major study, when we meet somebody for the first time, in the first 10 minutes, we lie 2.92 times on average. And they also find in studies that once you call somebody on a lie, that people have a tendency to ramp up the line. They actually lie harder, if you will, because you've questioned their ethics. And now they really have to justify what they have said. And I would guess that people are willing to take a little more risk in the lying mode when there's big money in it. When there's big money to be made, you have to realize that much of what you hear may not be the truth. I once spoke to an insurance company after seeing a full-page ad in a trade magazine for a line of their annuities that they sold through insurance agents. They had three annuities that were virtually the same except that each one had a different payout to the investor and a different commission to the agent. And as they paid out more to the agent, what the investor got became less and less. Well, we know which one the investor would want, and that's the one that paid out the most to the investor. I asked the insurance company which of the three products was most popular. And I didn't say most popular with the salespeople or most popular with the investors. But just which one sold the most 
And sadly, the one with the lowest payout to the client and the highest payout to the agent was what sold the most. 75% of the sales were for the worst product. I know the client never even knew they had a choice. They simply bought what their friendly insurance agent suggested. What they thought was in their best interest. Just another big lie. Number 31. The higher the expense and commission, the worse the advice. I would be willing to bet that if you take your situation to three different advisors, and then we take those three solutions and look at the cost to buy and maintain those three, that the one with the lowest commission or no commission at all, and the one with the lowest expenses ongoing, will be the best, the highest quality advice. I hope my view of how investing really works will be helpful in keeping you on track to making more money, taking less risk, and finding greater peace of mind. I believe the better you understand the process, the less likely you are to get off course. Thank you for listening. That was Paul Merriman with Sound Investing. Sound Investing, soundinvesting.com and paulmerriman.com are produced and exclusively owned by Paul Merriman, who is solely responsible for their content. For more information, free articles, mutual fund recommendations, and more, visit paulmerriman.com.